Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the wonderful gift that you've given us of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful truths that we've sung about this morning. Uh, and our prayer is that as we say those words, that they might take root in our lives and that our lives might in turn uh, speak those truths out, uh, the truths that you are Lord and King, uh, that you, uh, your love is wonderful and your love transforms us, uh, that Jesus is the one uh, who deserves the honour and the praise. Might our lives reflect those truths. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a new animated Christmas movie out this year. It's called The Star. And uh, it tells the Christmas story from the point of view of the donkey. Which I think is kind of interesting, considering the Bible doesn't even mention the donkey. But uh, apparently... Uh, I've seen the preview, that's it, but uh, from the preview it seems to be full of all sorts of animals with funny voices uh, and their adventures as they uh, travel to Bethlehem. And of course, somewhere there, there's Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Uh, and I, I reckon the kids will love it. And I think that's the way lots of people like to think about Christmas, that it's cute and endearing and mostly for the kids. There's the happy Christmas movies, there's the cheery Christmas cards, there's the cute nativity scenes in shop windows, so it's easy to see Christmas a little like a Disney movie, inoffensive, undemanding, tame and safe. But I want to do something different this morning. I want to look below the surface of Christmas as Matthew tells the story because the reality is it's not really a kid's story at all. There's a dark underbelly to the Christmas story. If anything, it should have an MA 15 plus rating and come with a warning. This story contains disturbing images that may offend some people. The reality is Christmas is something darker and grittier than people like to think. But in the end, I think it's a whole lot more exciting and a whole lot more important and joyful. Well, first up, think about the shame. We just read that part of the story from Matthew and the first piece of information we find out is that Mary and Joseph are pledged to be married. Back then, that pledge was more formal and more a sign of commitment than just being engaged today. You weren't married and living together, but, well, you were nearly married from what we can work out. But verse 18, that here comes the bombshell, Mary's found to be pregnant and it's not Joseph's. We're not told Mary's reaction. Perhaps she might have had uh, a, a bit of surprise as well, but uh, instead we learn from Matthew about Joseph. And in verse 19, we find out that Joseph, being a good bloke, doesn't want to disgrace her and decides to divorce her quietly. Now, that's all described by Matthew in a, in a calm, matter-of-fact manner. But can you imagine the hurt that the news must have brought? Uh, brought to her family? But what about to Joseph? What sort of a kick in the guts must that uh, news have been? The hurt, the confusion, the betrayal? Now Christmas is often a time for family dramas, I'll give you that, but I think this one would have had to be right up the top as far as family dramas go. I can see a few dads out there. Now, if you're a dad, perhaps you remember when you first found out that your wife was pregnant. 
the joy, the excitement, maybe the surprise, but it became the beginning of all sorts of plans. But for Joseph, there was none of that. There was the despair, there was hurt and the end of all his plans. But before he does anything too drastic, God steps in because in the end it's not about Joseph's plans at all, it's about God's plans. And he sheds some light on what seems to be this dark, shameful underbelly. But as he explains Mary's pregnancy, we move from the realm of the sordid and the slightly shameful to the realm of, well, supernatural and unbelievable perhaps. We move from a storyline taken from the bold and the beautiful to one you might find in Star Trek or The X-Files. And there's the second part of our MA rating, the supernatural. What we're told from verse 20 is that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Now that on its own is bizarre and supernatural enough, but the angel tells Joseph that Mary has conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now that's just impossible to understand, isn't it? That somehow God, who is spirit, chose to join himself with humanity whose flesh to produce a 100% human child, sidestepping the usual method of every other conception. 100% human, yet at the same time not just human, more than human. We're told in maths that, uh, you know, you 100% is it. So when the footballers say, I gave 150%, you know that it's just not possible. But in this case, Jesus was more than 100% human. Down in verse 22, Matthew adds the detail that all of this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God had joined himself to humanity. The creator had joined himself to his creation. The author had stepped into the pages of his own story. The author C.S. Lewis wrote, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. God become man. Every other miracle prepares for this exhibits this or results from this. The incarnation, Jesus, God become man, was the central event in the history of the earth, says C.S. Lewis. The very thing that the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the earth, has been about. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, then that idea is what all the Gospel writers set out to try and prove, that God becoming man in the person of Jesus is the central event in human history. If it really is the central event in the whole history of the earth, then it really shatters the view that the Christmas story is a safe Disney version of a children's story. If God really is getting involved in the human mess, then we should expect uh, plans for something extraordinary and dangerous to come from this birth. And that's the way things turn out. 
Uh, the first two parts of our MA15 plus rating of the Christmas story have been warnings about the shame, warnings about the supernatural. Well, the next part of the angel's message to Joseph is about the sin. And that really takes the Christmas story away from any sense of acute children's nativity scene. Verse 21, the angel commands Joseph to name the baby Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. And then he adds, because he will save his people from their sins. Now these days we give names to babies without much thought to the meaning. We named Alex Alexandra because we thought she looked like an Alexandra, not because we expected her to be a defender of mankind, which is what her name means. Uh, And we named Lachlan, Lachlan, because we liked the name, not because we thought he'd be of the lake, although that's kind of appropriate if you know anything about how much Lachlan likes the water. Uh, But in Jesus' time, names meant something. A certain name said something about you and the intention of your parents for what you would become. And so this name, Yeshua, Jesus, Yahweh the Lord saves, explains what Jesus' life would be about. It explains what he came to do and that was to save people from their sin. Now that seems like a completely inappropriate thing to bring up at Christmas when we want to focus on family and fun and festivities. Sin is what brings about wars and famine and terrorism. Sin is what brings about violence and selfishness seen on the global scale. It creates refugees and orphans and starving children. Time magazine recently put out its list of the best press photos of 2017. Now, there's a few images of Donald Trump up there, but the rest are of war and terrorism and famine and refugees and demonstrations. There are not too many smiling faces among the best press photos of 2017. And I reckon that sums up this year pretty well. That's what sin, that's the face of sin. People ignore God's ways and nations are torn apart. The whole world is cracking up because of sin. But can I get a a bit more personal? Because we really don't need to look at overseas news stories to see the effects of sin. All of us, you and me, are the face of sin. You know, a writer once said, we are all perpetrators and we are all victims. And I think that's right. We're all people who've been harmed, but we're also people who've harmed others. Just look honestly inside your family, inside your marriage, inside your friendships and be honest. We sin, we fail, we fall short of our own standards of what's right. Forget God's standard, we fall short of our own standard. Sin is those actions and words and thoughts that harm relationships. 
and ultimately that harm your relationship with God. Sin is, behind it all, the attitude that says to God, I want to do things my way, get out of my life. I'm in charge, not you. And so here again is the dark underbelly of this Christmas story. The world is broken. The world is heading for disaster and we, collectively and individually, are to blame. And one day, God will bring his just judgement against that. Each and every sinful person, we all face death and separation from him. But the wonderful, uh, the wonderful news is he offers us an alternative. He offers us a rescue plan. He's called, Jesus is called Jesus because he will save people. The baby grew up and lived the perfect life we couldn't and died the sinner's death that we deserved so that together with Jesus, when we trust him, we might receive life and freedom and relationship and eternity, all the things that Jesus deserved. Guilt and regret and resentment don't have to bind you. That's the best news you'll ever hear. It's the best gift you'll ever receive if you're willing to recognise that you're a sinner who needs rescuing. And that's why I said this dark underbelly of the Christmas story actually makes it more exciting and joyful. Because when you realise the great danger that you're in, your gratitude will be even more. Imagine you're sitting on the grass and someone offers you a hand up. Well, you'll be grateful. Yeah, gee, thanks. But if you know that you're sitting on the edge of a cliff that any moment will crumble into the sea and you'll fall to your death, well, in that case, the offer of a hand up will be that of a lifesaver. It'll be salvation and you'll be overjoyed. It'll be the best present you've ever received. And that's what it's like at Christmas. If Christmas is only about a helpless baby, if it's only about animated talking animals and family get-togethers and presents and food and peace on earth in some vague sort of impersonal temporary way, then, well, Christmas will make you happy. But But if Christmas is about the entrance of a rescuer God himself become man who's come to save you from a fate that is literally worse than death from his holy, eternal, just judgement against your sin. If it's a declaration of peace with your creator then you won't just be happy at Christmas. You'll be overjoyed. You'll be forever grateful. The rest of your life will bear testimony to the gift. And that's what the Christian life's all about. Not not that we're always happy, but that we live out our gratitude in service and obedience. That Jesus is our Lord and King as well as our Saviour, because he's our Saviour. And that brings us to the fourth part of the dark underbelly of the Christmas story, the sovereignty. Because Jesus wasn't just a baby, He came to be a king. 
Matthew goes on in chapter 2 to talk about the wise men and the kids were great with that story. Uh, The wise men understood who Jesus came to be. They arrive in Jerusalem and they ask King Herod, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? They knew. And when they find Jesus, they bow before him and they offer him the best that they've got. And that's an appropriate response. And even King Herod understands something of Jesus' claim to kingship. He hears there's a challenger to his authority and he wants him dead. Because for King Herod, the birth of another king means there's one king too many. And unfortunately, Herod's attitude is the attitude of many people today. Now, they may not want Jesus dead, but there's no place for another king in their lives because they're in charge. They set the course, they make the decisions, they come first. There's no place for a king who demands their allegiance, their gratitude, who demands the best they can offer. But if Jesus really has come to save us from our sin and if we really are teetering on the edge of the cliff of God's holy justice, then the forgiveness and restoration and peace that he offers is the best gift that's ever been offered. And to bow our knee before him in grateful, joyful obedience, well, that's the least we can do. That is the gift God wants to offer you this Christmas. To receive it is the best decision you'll ever make. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We, without him, we are in a mess. We're headed for a fall. We see something of that mess in the world around us and we long for you to step into our world the way you've already done when you stepped into humanity in the birth of Jesus. We pray that you would step into our lives that you would enable us and help us to bow before you and to offer you our obedience and our thanks. We pray that you would step into your world, that people all over the world might do that same thing and that lives and communities and cities and countries might be transformed and that they would all bow the knee before you, before the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.